This is probably one of the dearest things to me for a number of reasons. Um, this knife was Bianca's first gift to me, well, at least my first birthday gift to me ever. We were still dating. She knew that I enjoyed cooking. So she went and did the research. She spoke to some chefy friends and found out kind of, you know, what goes into a good blade and all the rest. Um, the occasion was actually, it was my birthday, but it was also the first time that her parents and my parents kind of got together around a table and had a meal. So it was a big deal. And to commemorate the occasion, she actually got it engraved 23rd of May, 2006. All right, from Bianca. So there it is, very special to me. Now, one of my peculiarities is that when I go away on holiday, I don't trust the knives that they've got there. So I always bring my own knife and my own knife sharpener. The problem was a few years ago, sorry, I'm pointing with this like sharp thing. Um, a few years ago, I left my knife in, in um, the underbook and I tried for a few months and then they had a change of ownership and no one could track it down and I was so upset. And then my wife, Bianca, was like, I'm gonna get this back. And when she's made up her mind, that happens, whatever it is, all right? So she says, I'm gonna get it back and she moved heaven and earth to get it back. So it's kind of like the resurrection of the knife. Um, <laughs> but it really is, it's really precious to me for those reasons. But not only is it special to me for those sentimental, emotional reasons, it's a really good blade. Now, a lot goes into making a good knife. Well, one of it is steel. And so indulge me with a little bit of geekiness this morning. Um, you see, you can get hard steel and you can get malleable steel. And making a good knife is just finding the right balance between hardened steel and the harder the steel, the sharper you can make the points. So for example, a sushi knife is of an incredibly hard steel. You can make it an incredibly narrow angle, but you can't really hit anything harder than some sushi, right? However, um, a knife like this has got a bit of a mixture between hardened steel and also malleable steel. So if you hit something hard, instead of breaking the edge, kind of just has a bit of a deviation and then you can sharpen it again. And so if you've got cheaper steel, you'll lose your edge quicker. The knife becomes corroded a lot quicker, but with a good steel, you've got a good edge, which matters. Do you know, ironically, sharper edges are safer than blunt edges, because it means when you go to cut your tomato or whatever it is, it means you cut where you're aiming, as opposed to the knife slipping and then cutting where you're not aiming. All right, so... Having a sharp edge matters. It also matters, for example, when you're cutting for a long period of time, you want to have a bit of an effortless motion so that you can cut whatever you need to be cutting. Balance is also incredibly important in a good blade. It really needs to not only feel good so that you feel good, it's, it needs to feel like an extension of your arm, which really matters, especially if you're going to be in the kitchen for some time. And so all of these things matter, but then what also matters is having the right blade for the right occasion. So I've got this big cleaver, which is fantastic for making Portuguese chicken on the bra, all right, butterflying them, but this would be horrible for filleting a trout. And so if you're going to be filleting a fish, you need something like this, all right, something that's flexible, something that's sharp, something that allows you to get as close to the bones as possible. But again, this is horrible for buttering your toast in the morning. And so we need a knife like this for buttering your toast, but this is horrible for cutting a loaf of bread. And so we need this knife in order to cut your loaf of bread. Point being, <laughs> we can say that we need the right knife for the right occasion. 
And, and as these knives are prepared with a certain purpose in mind, we can say that all of these knives are set apart. There's a purpose for which they are made and they become effective when they're used in those purposes. But not only do they have a purpose, they are prepared for those purposes. They are, they are sharpened, they are honed, they are designed. Time is spent forging them so they are maximally effective for their creative purposes. And this is where we're thinking about the church for the year of 2020. I have no doubt that God has incredible plans and promises and purposes for us as a church. And I've got no doubt that He is, well, He has already, He is fulfilling and He has, will continue to fulfill His plans and His purposes and promises in us and His church. And guys, I'm not thinking 2020, I'm hoping and I'm praying and I'm trusting that in generations to come, when Riverside is still advancing in the kingdom of God, those generations are gonna look back at this generation and they're gonna see our faith and they're gonna see our commitments and they're gonna see how we aligned ourselves with what, is, what God was doing and, and they're gonna be inspired to carry the baton on for generations to come. And so I've got no doubt about that. But here's the thing. Not only does God have plans and purposes for us as a church, He wants to prepare us. He wants to prepare us for those plans. To fulfill His promises, He needs to shape us. He needs to sharpen us. He needs to forge us. He needs to prepare us. So we are the most effective version of Riverside and we are the most effective version of ourselves so that we can fulfill those intended purposes that God has for us. So some of you are like, yes, amen. You know, Steve, that means God's gonna be working very hard on you. That means God is gonna be preparing you and shaping you and forging you and making you into a better preacher. The Sunday experience is gonna get better week on week. Our worship is gonna grow. Uh, our coffee is gonna get better. Everything about Sunday is gonna get better, right? The answer is kind of yes. I, I really do pray that, man, I carry on growing and I carry on learning that God is forging me and shaping me and developing me as a leader and a preacher. I really do pray that year on year, our ministries are able to push the line a little bit further. However, when we think about the church, it's not just like this nebulous idea. I get you rock up on a Sunday and things just feel a little bit better week on week. When I say that God has plans and purposes for us, those include you because you are the church. And so when we're saying God wants to prepare us, God wants to shape us. God wants to forge us. That means because you are included in his plans and purposes, he wants to shape and forge you. He wants to sharpen you. He wants to prepare you so that you get to participate in the fulfillment of his promises for us as we go forward as a church. And so as I was praying about 2020, and um, if I'm honest, just feeling a bit of a, a weight over this because, I mean, it's a kind of our 10th year as a church. It's a big year in my mind, and um, I, I know for God, every year is just another year to Him, but, but to me, I'm kind of like, God, is there something special you want to do in us this year? And, and he took me to a text. And, and just by the way, when we talk about Vision Sunday and when we talk about, Stephen, what are you praying about when you come to prepare the church for the year and for Vision Sunday? He, here, here's what I'm not so much praying about. I'm not so much thinking about, Lord, how much money do we have to raise? I'm not so much thinking, well, what awesome things are we gonna do this year? 
Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, give me the vision to see what you're doing. Because if Christ is the head of this church, that means it is up to us to be connected to the head, right? So God, give me the vision to see what you're doing. Give me the vision to lead us so that we are aligned with what you're doing. Give me the vision to hear or to see what you're wanting to say to us as a church. How you're wanting to correct us. How you're wanting to shape us. How you're wanting to forge us. And then, yes, let's talk about how we finance that. And then, yes, let's talk about how our ministries are going to be aligned with that vision. And let's get excited about those things. Absolutely. But give us the vision to see. And so as I engage every year in prayer on this, those are the kinds of prayers I'm praying. And God led me to an obscure passage. And just in advance, I'm going to prepare you that this is probably the strangest vision sermon you will ever hear. All right, I'm preparing you in advance, but again, go with me on this. Just to set the scene before we set, read the passage, if you do have your Bibles here, turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to pick up a few verses into that chapter. But um, the scenery is this. After about 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after about 400 years of oppression, God miraculously releases His people to start the long walk to freedom, all right? To start the walk to the promised land. But there was a bit of a problem. The problem was there was more of Egypt in them than God. So time and time again, God is needing to rebuke them. Time and time again, God is needing to restore His promises to them and call them to be His people. But because of their repeated disobedience, He said, guys, here's the thing. This generation is not prepared to inherit my promises. And so we're going to wander around the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. And quite literally, this generation is going to die out. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise your sons and daughters. I'm going to raise a new generation. A generation that is not tainted by Egypt. A generation that trusts me. A generation where my word and my desires and my promises are on their hearts. And it is that generation this Joshua generation that is going to take the promised land. And so after 40 years of wandering and after over 400 years of looking forward to the promised moments, there's God's people finally standing on the boundary of the deserts and the promised land. And the only thing between them was the River Jordan. And then what God did was He stopped the river upstream And then in a miraculous moment that must have been so powerful to be part of, God brings His people and finally they set foot on the promises of God. Literally. And so there's this kind of in-between stage where they're in the promised land, but they have yet to settle in the promised land. They have yet to take a single city. They have yet to see the walls of Jericho fall down. They're kind of in the waiting room of the promised land. And this is the kind of the scenario for the verses that we're going to read this morning. So let's read Joshua 5, verses 2 to 3. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. And so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeoth Haroleth. And that is our vision text. <laughs> and you thought, I brought these knives as an illustration. So gents, I'm just going to ask you if you can line up on the left-hand side of here.
So I'm sure you've got more questions than answers at the moment. So Stephen, where are you going with this? Well, let's let the text help us. So let's read on. Verse four. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the deserts on their way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so he raised up their sons in their place. And they were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And you're like, Stephen, stop saying the word circumcised. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now, most of us, all of us know what circumcision is. But I don't know if we all know what circumcision means. And so in order to uncover what it means, we need to go back into the story, back when Jesus started, or when God started this renewal project, when he started with a family, when he started with Abraham, and he gave Abraham these promises. And even though he had yet to have any children, and he was old in age, he made these promises to Abraham. He said, you are going to have a promised child who I will miraculously provide. And through him, you're going to have many descendants who will become a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. And God comes to Abraham time and time again, renewing his covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, God again comes to him. He says, this is what I'm going to do and what I'm going to do. At this stage, um, Abraham was living in what we'd call the promised land, but it wasn't called that yet. This was called Canaan. And he was living as a bit of a stranger, an exile, an alien. And God says to him, listen, this land in which you are currently an alien, I'm going to give you. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And I'm going to bring you to a point where this great nation inherits this land. That's what I'm going to do. But Abraham, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take all your sons and on the eighth day, you're going to circumcise them. And so just like on my left hand, I've got a wedding ring. It's not about the wedding ring. It's about what the wedding ring represents. That it represents the covenant between Bianca and I. It represents the vows that we made. And so it is possible to have a wedding ring and not fulfill the vows. Because that's not the point. The point is not the ring. The ring is there to remind us and a visual picture for anybody who looks at us to know what is actually going on. And in the same way, it wasn't about this minor circumcision. It wasn't about the surgical procedure. It was about God's covenants and about God's promises saying, here's what I'm going to do. Now as a sign, here's what I need you to do. Fast forward back to our story. So what's going on here with these Israelites? What's going on here is God is renewing his covenant, the same covenant with a new generation of Israelites. Saying, I am still gonna do what I've committed myself to do. Now here's how you are to fulfill your side of the covenants. Verse 
This was something physical. It's not like, oh yeah, in my heart, Lord, I'm for you. No, this was something sacrificial. It was, by getting circumcised, this was going past the line of no return, right? This involved a bit of pain. This involved some loss. This involved actually becoming pretty vulnerable. Think about it. They're now in this new land. They have yet to conquer it. And there they are, all the men immobile for three days. So that's to trust God in their vulnerability. Now, here's something we need to know about circumcision. On the one hand, it's, it's tied to God's promises. It's, a, it's, the, it's the wedding ring. It's, it's the, the picture of the covenant between us and God. But even in the Old Testament, circumcision wasn't just about that. So in Deuteronomy 10, 16, God says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. In other words, what the physical circumcision represents is a circumcision of your heart. What I really want is your heart. What I really want is for you to be prepared to cut out those things that challenge my lordship and sovereignty in your life and, and my affections. What I really want is a heart fully devoted to me and my ways and my kingdom. And so stopping stiff-necked, which is another way of stopping so stubborn. Jeremiah 4 verses 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. And then we get to the New Testament and we start to see that the Israelites had got into a place where they got the kind of external thing right, but they forgot about the heart thing. And so they got to a point where every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day. And that is a point of pride. There's a point of national pride. In fact, that is a point of religious pride. Hey, I've done the right thing. I'm in with the right group. I'm in with God's promises, yes? And then Jesus comes and he starts challenging their hearts. He starts saying, guys, that little surgical procedure doesn't make you people of faith. Doesn't mean your hearts have been circumcised. And so Galatians 5 verse 6, Paul writes, For in Christ... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's the real state of the heart that I want. Where you have faith, now, that's not just like a positive feeling inside of you. That means I trust God so much, I'm going to obey Him in a demonstration of faith. That's what faith means. And so the only thing that matters is a full, deep, abiding trust of God that demonstrates itself in obedience in a concept of incredible sacrificial love. Galatians 6.15, a few verses later, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What really counts is how God is redeeming you. What really counts is how God is forging you and shaping you and calling you out of your sinful nature. That's what really counts. Romans 2, 28 to 29. A man's not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Now that's not a national identity thing. That means you are the people of God. You're the people of the covenant. 
We are, we are that if we are one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. It's something that God does. He separates something from our heart, in our hearts. He separates something in our lives by the Spirit, not by the written code. And finally, Colossians 2.11. In Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised. How? In the putting off of the sinful nature. Not a circumcision done by the hands of men, but a circumcision done by Christ. And so what is this really about? True circumcision is going to demonstrate itself in faith. Obedience and trust to God and His Word. It's going to demonstrate itself in love. It's going to demonstrate itself by allowing God to cut off those things in our heart which are rotten and perverse and are committed to the kingdoms of this world in order that I may have a heart that is fully committed to Him. Circumcision is about allowing God to shape me and cut off my sinful nature. And in one sense, Christ has done that in a moment on the cross. So legally, I stand before God as a clean one. But He's also restoring us to that on a day-to-day level. And He's tripping away our sinful nature. And so circumcision is by submitting to that often painful process of God releasing new creation in us and circumcising our sinful nature. And so for these Israelites, just as it was a a physical participation and trust in the promises of God, so true circumcision has to be physical. I'm physically participating with what God is doing. I'm willing to cross a line of no return. I'm willing to allow God to do whatever it takes not only to set me apart, but to prepare me so that I can be used to fulfill what He wants to do in our generation. And I believe that is what God wants to do in us as a church this year. What I'm about to say, I could say to any church on the planet, that so many, many people are part of a church for the free ride. What that means is, oh, I mean, I don't think anyone, unless, unless they're really hostile and they're there against their will, but I don't think anyone comes to church and is like, I don't want to see God bless this place. Everyone's sitting here, whether you come once a year or, or twice a day. You, you want to see God bless us. You want to see God work in us. But often that means is I want to be part of what God is doing by osmosis. In other words, I want to rock up on a Sunday after a tough week and just bask in God's glory. I just want to, you know, I'm amazed when other people rock up. I mean, guys, this last week in our prayer meeting, we saw people rock up. We had an incredible amount of Riversiders kind of do whatever they needed to do to get to Rosebank on the Wednesday night to pray. We had such incredible times of of worship and fasting and prayer and, and, and spiritual warfare and Riversiders showed up. But so many of us are grateful when, oh man, our church is such a great church. We had such great prayer meetings. So many other people went to the prayer meetings. God is doing such wonderful stuff in Steve's preaching. God is doing such incredible things in the leadership and in the worship ministry. I rock up on a Sunday and I feel such bubbly things. And then we believe our own lies. And because I'm part of this this thing by association, I'm part of what God is doing. And just like the Israelites, Every single Israelite had to make a decision. Am I going to be part of the circumcision moment? Am I going to cross the line? Count the costs. 
not only just to get this painful moment, but so that I too can be part of God fulfilling His promises in us. And I have front row seats for that. And so God wants us to be set apart, but He also wants us to be prepared. And that means every single one of us needs to make a decision. I was reminded in a sermon this last week by a pastor I enjoy his podcast from time to time. His name's Craig Rochelle. And he's preaching on prayer and he's teaching on this prayer where we say, as I'm sure all of you have prayed at some point in your life, Lord, speak to me. He says, here's the deal. Most of us, we say, Lord, speak to me because, you know, should I date her? Should I date her? <laughs> or Lord, speak to me. Should I move to Cape Town or PE? And some of these are weighty decisions, Right? But he makes this point. He says, go through the entire Bible from page one to the final page. And he challenges you to find a single moment where God spoke clearly and it was easy. And so he said, if you're gonna pray the prayer, Lord, speak. You're inviting God to come to you with a vision which is greater than you're capable of fulfilling on your own. And God is gonna challenge you and God is gonna call you to sacrifice and obedient faith and a trust in a far bigger God and a far bigger reality of His kingdom and a far bigger picture of what He wants to do, but He wants to include you in that story. And so, the decision we're gonna make is, am I gonna be part of that? Not is Riverside, you are Riverside. Are you gonna be part of that? Are you gonna be prepared to say, Lord, speak? shape me, refine me, do your work, prepare me. I'm prepared to allow the Spirit of God to circumcise me so that I'm fully and wholly His set apart and prepared for whatever He wants to do here. Now, I'm no prophet, but if you don't pray that prayer, and I'm not, no one's forcing you to do anything, but if you don't pray this prayer, here's what I predict is gonna happen. You're gonna rock up once a month or every two weeks or whatever for the Sunday buffet. And the reason why you stuck around for this Sunday buffet is because you liked this, the Sunday buffet at Riverside Community. You're like, oh, I like the worship in the beginning. Not too loud, not too soft, whatever. And then you're gonna get to a point where you're like, oh, I don't like what they served today. Huh. Ah, there's another buffet around the corner. And they serve Chinese. Okay, I'm gonna go to this buffet. So we're gonna go to this buffet. And they do everything Riverside does and they serve Chinese. Oh, I love this buffet. And then one day the noodles are gonna be cold. Oh, there's another buffet around the corner. I'm gonna go to that buffet. They serve Indian food too. And then eventually, it might happen this year, it might happen in five years' time, it might happen in 15 years' time. You're gonna give up on going to those kinds of restaurants completely. You're gonna see through your own lies. But if you do, and I don't care if you've been a Christian for five seconds or 50 years, if you do, submit yourself willingly to the work of God. God, I don't know what this means, but I know that you have promises for your church globally. You have promises for this church locally. And I wanna be part of that. And I want to be set apart for your purposes. And I also want to be prepared for your purposes. So Lord, I yield to you. And I'm prepared to cross the point of no return. And I'm prepared to count the costs. 
but I want to be the front row seats of everything that you're going to do in and through us. Guys, this is why when it came to Gideon's army, God could do more with 300 devoted soldiers than 30,000 soldiers who were half in. This is why when it came to defeating the Philistines and, and their kind of, their, their big guy, Goliath, God could do more with a, a, probably a 15-year-old shepherd boy than an entire army who is shaking in their boots. This is why John Wesley, who literally, there's a book called England Before and After John Wesley, literally changed the nation. And so John Wesley said, give me 100 men who love only God with all their heart and hate only sin with all their heart and we will shake the gates of hell and bring in the kingdom of God in one generation. And our question is, is that you? And so I want us to pray. And I want to invite you somehow in this moment. I mean, I, I've said in church hundreds of times, you're like, hmm, that, that, that's a good thing. Amen. Nothing changes. I want to invite you to a crisis moment, just like those men that you line up and come literally in touch with steel. Are you prepared to come in touch with the sanctifying work of Christ and his spirit in your life? So that you are part of what God is doing here this year. So let's pray. Father, I pray that just like you were able to raise up a generation out of the desert, out of a place where it appeared that this was a moment of meaninglessness and it appeared to be so little fruit of what you're doing, Father God, you, out of that space, you raised up a generation of faith. A generation who were set apart and a generation who were prepared to trust you and do whatever it takes to be part of what you were doing and they got to see your promises. So Father God, would you raise up the generation in us? Would you include every one of us in that generation? And so Father God, would you renew in us your covenant to us that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Father God, that you desire that all be saved and, and your church is the one that is your plan A for the world. And somehow in our frailty and our brokenness, you still place your bride front and foremost in your kingdom. And those are your promises. And Father God, we want to have front row seats to all you are doing and will continue to do. And so Father God, raise up a generation who are willing to submit themselves to you, point of no return. Points where we yield, maybe even in a bit of trepidation, Lord, do what it takes. Prepare me, sharpen me, forge me, shape me so that I become effective in your hand for your kingdom. Maybe you're gonna pray something along these lines. Holy Spirit, I invite you in. Circumcise my heart so that my heart is devoted to you. Cut away those things in my heart which, which rot within me and which take me away from your kingdom. Jesus Christ, circumcise my sinful nature. Chop it away, Father. 
as painful as it may be, so that I'm set apart and prepared for your purposes. And so church, as we continue in this year, whether it's the pulpit, whether it's ministries, whether it's things that we put in the calendar, they're gonna be guiding us in this direction where we submit and yield to how the Lord shapes us and sharpens us. And so Father, will you do this work in us? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.